Well, uh, good morning, Christ Community. Good to be with you all. Um, I wanted, my name is Reed Kappel. For those of you who don't know me, I serve as the campus pastor here. And it is a joy to, to gather with you, to celebrate with you. And it is my joy and honor uh, to share with you that we have um, our founding senior pastor, uh, Tom Nelson, who will be with us this morning to share God's word with us. Uh, many of you know we as a, as a church, we are a multiplying congregation across our city of five campuses, but that has not always been the case. Uh, Christ Community was planted and launched 31 years ago, uh, March 5th. It's the same birthday as my wife, so I always remember our anniversary <clears throat> as a church. Um, but it is a joy to, to be a part of what God has been doing over these three decades, and we look forward to seeing what he continues to do. But um, if you don't know Tom, um, I, I hope you will be blessed and encouraged by our time together with him. Uh, Tom is an incredible pastor, faithful husband and father, uh, incredible leader, but more than that, of all the things that, that influences me about Tom is that he loves Jesus deeply. He's devoted to his mission and to his bride, and so I hope you capture that, you catch that as we seek to follow Jesus together. And so uh, what I'd like to do is I'd, I'd like to read our scripture reading for this morning uh, and then invite Tom up. And so if you would, at this time I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word uh, from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now after he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum now a centurion had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and, I, and let my servant be healed, for I, too, am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And will you please join me in welcoming up Tom Nelson. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Reed. And uh, it is great to be with each one of you. Uh, and uh, across our campuses, I want to just uh, give you a warm Christ community welcome. So I see familiar faces that I love and cherish, and I hope you'll say hi to me after the service. I'd love to meet you if I haven't had that joy. So thank you. And this Lenten season, it's a special delight to be with you uh, as we reflect on Christ uh, in his work on the cross and his glorious resurrection. So thank you. When I stand here, I'm pretty overwhelmed because I've had the front row seat or a front row seat to see God's work in all of our lives. And I remember, I think I have a picture, remember the first time I came to this campus, uh, a group of uh, pioneers. Uh, I've, met, I've seen a couple this morning with uh, Heritage, and uh, what a joy it is to continue to see, isn't it? Oh, God has uh, worked uh, in our lives. And so I remember the very first day I walked into this building. And uh, again, as Rita said, what a, what a delight to be a part of God's work and how God continues to work. So thank you, thank you for the wonderful staff. You have an amazing staff. 
uh, that love you and are competent and love Jesus and what a delight it is to serve with Reed and also Nathan now in a senior pastor role. So thank you. Thank you for this great privilege and I hope uh, that you know that uh, our Christ Community family is uh, larger uh, around the city and it's a joy I have every once in a while to say hi to you. So thanks for being a part of the Christ Community family. Let's pray and then we'll open God's word together. So Father, uh, with the words of scripture, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of each one of our hearts be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout history, uh, people across the spectrum of life have marveled at Jesus. Brilliant people, gifted people, have commented on the wonder of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, the brilliant phys uh, physicist Albert Einstein put it this way. He said, no one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such a life. Uh, the great painter Vincent van Gogh spoke of Jesus this way. He said, he lived serenely as a great artist, greater than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. That is to say, this matchless artist made neither statues nor pictures nor books. He loudly proclaimed that he made living men immortals. One of my most compelling philosophers, although he didn't always share my same view of Jesus, was Jacques Rousseau. Uh, and this is what he said. He said, get rid of the miracles <laughs> and the whole world will fall at Jesus' feet. The courageous religious leader, social reformer, Mahatma Gandhi, put it this way, which is a bit biting, isn't it? He says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians because your Christians are so unlike Christ. When you look across the terrain of human history, when you interact with people, even in your workplace and in your school, you often find that people marvel at Jesus of Nazareth. But have you ever wondered what Jesus really marveled at? What was it that stopped him in his tracks? Well, the brilliant writer Gospel Luke in his first century masterpiece, which is the finest Greek in the New Testament, gives us an answer to that question. What did Jesus marvel at? What stopped, in, stopped Jesus in his track? What stood Jesus in awe? And the answer to that question emerges in Luke chapter 7. So if you've not opened yet your Bible, whether it's electronic or paper, please turn to me in this text that Reed has written. Now, let me set the context, because as a church family across our campuses, we are exploring Luke's brilliant and inspired gospel. We've entitled this series, Rediscovering Jesus, because wherever you are on your spiritual journey, whether you are newer to the faith, whether you're checking it out, whether you've been in church all your life, I can assure you of this, when we rediscover Jesus, it impacts our life. And before we dive into the text, particularly as we should as thoughtful readers and listen, listeners of the sacred text, let's set the literary stage. Now, Luke is a brilliant historian, and Luke opens his gospel reminding us that the events he records from his inspired pen are anchored firmly in eyewitness accounts in space-time history. So these are something we can depend on very strongly. And Luke has unpacked this in the first chapters, and he frames Jesus of Nazareth not only in human history, but he frames him in the Old Testament context. Jesus of Nazareth is placed in kingly language. He explains Jesus is the prophesied Messiah of old, who has now come and is ushering in his long-awaited kingdom. So the good news of this king and this kingdom emerged in the early chapters of Luke. 
this gospel of the kingdom, he is shockingly and surprisingly is saying is now available to everyone. So in Luke chapter 6, in context, Jesus gives a sermon. And we have been unpacking that across our campuses from our teaching team. He tells us in Luke 6, he is ushering in this kingdom. And where the surprising kingdom, the poor can experience the blessings of God. Right? I mean, the outsider can become the insider. The hungry can be satisfied. The weeping can be joyful when they embrace the king and his message. And as Luke 6 ends in the twilight of this text, he reminds us that we are not only just to be hearing his words with our ears, but to be obeying them with our lives. This is the literary context to which we now find ourselves in Luke 7. Now, you'll notice in the text, in Luke 7, Luke is very specific in his literary structure that he is pivoting his gospel. This is a massive shift in what he has said. And beginning in verse 2, we will notice that Luke's literary spotlight will shine, and this is the frame of the story, on a surprising hero with surprising bold faith. A surprising hero with bold faith. And this is how he arranges the train of his thoughts that we are going to follow this morning. A surprising hero with bold faith. So beginning in verse 2, again, as you look with me, Luke introduces us to this surprising hero, and he's surprising. He's stunning. He is described as a centurion. Now, most of us would want to know his name and more context of his history, but we do not. But we know his Roman world in the first century. We know it well. We know much about him. History tells us a lot about this person. He is a military commander, so if you love the military, this is his vocation. He oversees at least 100 soldiers, and we know that he is seen in Palestine or by his Jewish people as an occupier. He is given one of the most toughest assignments in the Roman world. Think today of the tough assignment of an American military commander in Afghanistan. This is the context. The Jewish people of northern Galilee did not like him. <laughs> he was an occupier. Some resented him. Most hated him, and some were working to overthrow him. Do you get the idea? It is a tough and dangerous assignment. And this is important for us to understand from a cultural context as we enter into this story. Now, notice with me that Luke informs us that this military officer has a servant, or we might call him, in our context, a household employee. He's not a, not a military person. He's very sick, and the gospel writer Matthew gives us more texture as he gives us a parallel in Matthew 8, so you might want to look at that later this week. There's a richer texture to this story, but we know he's paralyzed. He's lying on death's door. In other words, we can infer that all remedies of the current day have been exhausted. So it's a very hopeless situation. But word has been getting out. Luke has been telling us there is someone rising across Galilee and even Jerusalem like this person, Jesus. Have you heard of him? Yes, the Roman military commander has heard of him. How could you not? Amazing healer and teacher. So he's pretty smart. What does this Roman military commander do? Now, it's important to understand he doesn't directly make contact with Jesus. This military commander is not only culturally astute, but he's an astute sociologist. Any salesperson, if you're in sales, you know that the hardest call is a cold call, right? That work and life 
centers in what we would call today as good networking, right? That's how business gets done. How do you make contact with someone you have never met? Well, you find someone they know and that you know, and they introduce you. And this is exactly what the text tells us. The centurion knows not only that, he, he knows Je- he's never met Jesus. He's heard of him. But not only that, you talk about sales resistance. I mean, he is a military occupier. He's a Gentile. Jesus is a Jewish itinerant rabbi. <laughs> That's not an easy equation for sales, is it? So what happens is the Jewish centurion knows some of the leaders of the synagogue in Capernaum. And he knows they can get an audience with Jesus, even if he can't. So what happens? The centurion knows how the world works. And this is similar again to our Monday workplaces, isn't it? It's about networking. This past week I found myself on a Zoom call. I do that quite a bit. And uh, someone that I knew in California wanted me to be introduced to someone who was in Milwaukee. So one of the great joys of Zoom calls is we can connect. I never met this business leader. But the goal was, is my friend in California wanted this uh, business leader to meet me and see if I would open a door for a national speaker at their conference, because I know this national speaker. So we all had this experience. So we had this delightful conversation. I met this national business leader. I said, I'd do my best to introduce him to this speaker. But that's how the world works, right? That's how the first century world worked as well. Now, to understand what's going on here, this is what the centurion is doing. And his Jewish friends really make quite a persuasive appeal, don't they? Look with me carefully at verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, notice, notice the enthusiasm. This text is not about manipulative, uh, being manipulative, it's impassioned plea. That's the idea. They plead with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. And he is the one who built us our synagogue. You gather the dynamic, what's going on here? Now, notice what the leaders say to Jesus. Don't let our passion about this Roman military officer who's occupying Palestine. What do they say about him? They don't describe him as an oppressive occupier. (laughs) They frame him as a righteous Gentile who loves the Jewish people. So much this wealthy military officer has given money to build their synagogue. This is stunning for the first century readers. They would have just been like, what? You've got to be kidding. Okay, this is the context. Now, we don't know the motivations of the centurion's benevolence to the Jewish people. Now, there's probably a bit of a quid pro quo. It was common in military worlds, and when you occupy a force, you try to cultivate goodwill with the people, right? So there could have been a little bit of like quid pro quo. But the rest of the story tells us more. That this centurion actually loved the God of the Jews. And he loved the Jewish people. He is drawn to them. And Luke is beginning to unveil before our eyes, friends, one of the most surprising and stunning and shocking heroes of the entire New Testament right here. Imagine a wealthy Roman military officer who is the earliest surprising hero in Luke's entire gospel. And he's a surprising hero now that will exude the most amazing bold faith. 
look how the story continues. So Jesus heads to the centurion's house. He drops everything, everything he's doing. The centurion hears Jesus is coming. That's the implication if you have your text open. Word is getting out. And what the centurion does is where, is where Luke focuses the proportion of his story. This is where Luke is. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not, notice the text, presume to even, better translation, to even come to you. But just say the word and let my servant be healed. But I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to them, go. You can always hear him clicking his, hang, or his, his, his finger. Go. And he goes. To another, come. And he comes. And to my servant, do this. And he does it. Now let's remember who is writing this gospel. Luke, most likely, the strongest tradition, is a Gentile writer. He's the only Gentile writer in the entire New Testament. He is a physician. And Luke is going out of his way to point out the Gentile centurion and his unmistakable display of what? Authentic humility, exceptional cultural intelligence, and loving sensitivity. This military officer knows who Jesus is. Jesus is a itinerant now, he was a carpenter, now an itinerant religious rabbi. A religious rabbi, for goodness sakes who is committed to a life of ritual purity. Hmm. So, entering a Gentile home would have been not only uncomfortable, but a religious defiling. Now, in a Western world, with tolerance and pluralism, this is hard for us to relate to. We don't think like that, unless we go to certain parts of the global world. And sometimes we do things in a cultural context we have no idea what we're doing. I'll never forget one of my most painful experiences. And sometimes we learn this the hard way. Many years ago, my wife and I were in a graduate study program in Israel. We were living in Jerusalem and studying. It was a Friday afternoon and we had some time off from our classes. And so we got on a bus in Jerusalem. And uh, we made our way through a section of Jerusalem called Miyashirim. And if you know Jerusalem, Miyashirim is the most orthodox place of Jewish sensibilities. So imagine we got on the bus in another section of Jerusalem when we made our way, and as we got more and more, people were getting ready for Shabbat. So the buses were getting full. They were getting really full. And again, if you travel to parts of the world, they were like armpit full, right? You've been there? Not a comfortable place, any place, let alone the Middle East, I assure you. So I'd gone on early with my bride, Liz, and we were sitting. So it was packed. Imagine this, Shabbat is coming, and this sweet old lady walks on the bus with all her Shabbat packages. Like, think Macy's, like extravaganza. And the bus is full, and she must have been 100 years old, at least to me then. 
So what did my mommy teach me in rural Minnesota, in American culture? Defer to a woman, let alone an elderly woman, who is burdened down like, you know. So I begin to stand up. The bus is packed. You with me? All of a sudden, I wasn't even all the way up, and the bus exploded with anger. Now, I didn't know Hebrew very well, <laughs> but I knew this. I knew swear words when I heard them. <laughs> it was like, I was like this. I go, yikes. And the minute I sat down, it was completely quiet. Now, this is what is occurring in this text. This is getting up at the bus moment for Jesus to go even near or let alone his house. This was stunning. And the centurion knew it. And notice what the centurion says to Jesus. The centurion says, because of who you are, notice, you don't even need to come into my home. Or you don't even need to touch my servant with your hands to heal him. Notice what the text says. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. This military officer is the early hero of bold faith in the Gospels. He knows all Jesus has to do is say the word, and it's done. And let's not miss that this military officer's spiritual insight came not from a synagogue, it came from his workplace. His vocational understanding brought great spiritual insight. His Monday work world was not a barrier to faith in Jesus. It actually was the bridge to faith in Jesus. No, that's true in our workplaces. Our workplaces are our primary place where we are spiritually formed and where Jesus is with us, whether we're flipping burgers or flipping homes. Our workplaces, paid or unpaid, is the primary place where we are formed spiritually and where our faith can grow. Faith not only informs our Monday world, our Monday world forms our faith. It was the military officer's vocational life that bridged him to faith in Jesus. This is really important for us to grasp. Now, hearing this military officer's remarkable insight Notice how Jesus responds, because this is where Luke goes in this text. Jesus is stopped in his tracks. This military officer turns Jesus' head like nobody else in the Gospel of Luke. Look at verse 9. Luke employs important, vivid language. When Jesus heard these things, notice the text, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Not in the synagogues, not in the religious leaders, not in the Jewish people. I have never seen greater understanding than this military officer who's a Roman Gentile. Now, the English word marveled is hard to translate here from the Greek text. But one thing that's important to understand, the only time the gospel writers ever use this Greek word under this English marble, the only time, is in response to faith or a lack of faith. The gospel writers only use this word twice in the New Testament. Here, Luke uses it, and then the gospel of Mark uses it in Mark 6. 
in both different ways. Here it is, faith that's unexpected in a very surprising place. In Mark chapter 6, it's Jesus' hometown. Jewish people who are religious. And Jesus marvels at their lack of faith. What stops Jesus in his tracks? What turns his head is one thing. It is bold faith in him. Bold faith in him. And Luke will showcase the most surprising heroes as we walk through the Gospel of Luke in the year ahead. I want you to keep your eyes attentive to that. Because God's kingdom is surprising. The Gospel of the kingdom takes that which is a world and turns it upside down. Outsiders become insiders. The poor become rich. Spiritually rich, that is. So let's look over the shoulder and through the heart. This is what Luke wants us to do, of a first century Roman military officer who challenges you and me to live a life of bold faith. So let's talk a little bit about this important matter of faith. The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that without faith, it is impossible to please God. That faith is the currency of this kingdom. Now let me just say, the scriptures also say that we walk by faith not by sight. And let's understand from the biblical story that we were designed to live by faith. You and I were never intended to live within the suffocating confines of our puny finitude. We were designed, you were designed, all of us were designed to live in the context of an intimate relationship with God, whose attentive presence and his infinite joy and his abundant resources are always with us and available to us. Do not miss this in the story. The key of bold faith in Jesus opens a door to these infinite resources in our lives. It opens the door. Faith in Jesus empowers you and me for everyday life. It is not only empowering, faith is enlightening. Now listen carefully. We often speak of the eyes of faith. You ever heard of that? That's good metaphor. Because faith is anything but a blind leap. Faith properly understood in Jesus is the primary way we see reality. Faith is the lens, the primary lens in which we see the world. Hebrews 11.3 tells us that in this great kind of library or museum of the great people of faith, Hebrews 11.13 says, they saw it from a distance. Now, I don't know if you've uh, have taken your kids, if you have children or grandchildren, to Disney World or Disneyland, right? It's a pilgrimage for a modern American family. Like, we did that as well. But I love to know that Walt Disney has a lot of history in Kansas City. And one of the great stories in 1871, which is a long time ago, when Disney World in Orlando opened up as the showcase to the world, Walt Disney had already died. And someone, during the opening <laughs> unveiling of Disney World in Orlando, lamented and said, oh, I am so sad that Walt Disney didn't live to see this day. To which the person they shared that with looked him in the eye and said, oh yeah, Walt Disney did see it. See, this is the picture that we are given of faith in the scriptures. 
It is the primary way we see reality. It is the lens through which we increasingly see as God sees and experience his intimate presence in our life. So let's reflect for a moment in our own lives about bold faith. I'm going to suggest three characteristics of bold faith that are vital for you and me wherever we are in our spiritual journey. And I'd like you to either write them down or think them through sort of in the furniture of your mind as you think about this week. How do we apply this text to our lives? Three characteristics emerge in this text. First, bold faith is available to everyone. To everyone. Isn't it encouraging to read this story and see this surprising person who has bold faith in Jesus? See, the kingdom of God, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, the broken, the hurting, the irreligious, the religious, can exhibit bold faith. Isn't it tempting for all of us to think if I just had more faith, or if I just understood Jesus or Christianity better, then everything would be good. Right? If I just had greater understanding of who Jesus is and what he's done, now that's a good thing. But here's the rub. It's actually faith in Jesus that opens the door to greater understanding. It is not just having greater understanding that opens the door to Jesus. It is faith in Jesus that opens the door to greater understanding. That is not only true in any discipline, it's true of all knowledge. It's not that knowledge brings greater faith. It's that greater faith brings greater knowledge. So as you reflect on your life this morning, you may be struggling with trusting God. This is not an easy thing for any of us. You may find yourself in a black hole of discouragement or storms of doubt. That's very normal. And bold faith may not come easy for you. Anyone like that? And you may feel this morning, you don't have a lot of faith. It's really small in there. But you know what? What is so awesome about faith? It's not how much faith we have. It's really about the power and goodness of the one we place our faith in. Hear me carefully. It's not the size of our bold faith or your bold faith. It's the size of our awesome God that matters most. You know, if we were to interview the centurion, I'd love to imagine these stories. If you were to interview him after this fact, or even before, if you said, sir, how did you get such bold faith? I am sure as I'm standing here, he'd go, what? I'm not a person of bold faith. And here's what truth snuggles out under the text to our life right now. It is this, and I don't want you to miss it. Even a little faith goes a long way when it finds its way to Jesus. Jesus said to his followers something powerful. It's not a throwaway. That even if we have the faith of a mustard seed, it's very tiny, an entire mountain can be moved. See, we don't have to have a great deal of faith, but we need to place it at the feet of the one who can transform all reality.
like that. Now, the unlikely story of Christ's community, Reed was kind enough to share a little bit, but let me just share a couple things. I've had the joy of observing God's work in these 30 years. And if you'll let me scroll back to the very first month or two when we arrived in Kansas City, Liz and I, with our six-month-old son, Schaefer. We are and have been and always will be the most ordinary and me often boring people you know. And I remember arriving at 2916 Oxford Terrace, apartment. And I remember getting a phone call from a business person in Dallas. And they asked me the question, like, where are the people? Where's your building? What, like, and you could just hear it. It doesn't make sense. And I remember after that phone call, getting on my knees and crying like a baby, like saying, what on earth have we done? You know, the only way I recovered at that moment rather than do something else or go home (laughs) was somehow in God's grace I recognized one thing, that it wasn't how much faith I had. It was the God I was placing there. The history of Christ's community, the history of the Olathe campus, the history of faith pioneers, very average, ordinary people who trust an extraordinary God. That's how God works. So where in your life this week does God want you to pull out that mustard seed and embrace bold faith? First characteristic, bold faith is available to everyone, to you and to me, every moment. Secondly, bold faith has confidence in Jesus. You see this. At the very heart of bold faith is a humble confidence in the person and work of Jesus. Notice the centurion says, Lord, just say the word, it'll be done. Bold faith finds its way to Jesus, the one who shed his innocent blood on the cross as an atoning sacrifice for your sin, the one who defeated death for all time by raising bodily from the dead, the one who ascended to heaven, the one who will return one day as the conquering king. Have you placed your trust in Jesus? As your Lord and Savior, yes. Have you given your life to him? Are you in bold faith becoming his apprentice? You and I can have absolute confidence in Jesus. We can fully trust him with everything in our life. If there's one thing I've learned over following Jesus now for a lot of years, it's that truth. You can trust him with everything in your life because he is constantly with you. Because of who he is, Paul, the apostle Paul, writes to the church at Colossians. Listen to this, who this Jesus is we're trusting. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And this Jesus of Nazareth is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Let me ask you, if that is who Jesus is, then you can trust him with every aspect of your life today, tomorrow, on Monday morning. Every relationship you're in, everything you're facing in life, at home, at school, at work, the money and economic challenges you may be facing after this week, (laughs) the wisdom you need on the job, 
Let me ask you, who do you think can run your life best? You or Jesus? This is a really important question. Bold faith is available to everyone. Bold faith has confidence in Jesus. Notice, lastly, bold faith relies on Jesus' authority. Do you see the authority theme here? We all struggle with authority, don't we? We live in a time when people have let us down in authority. But notice the connection of bold faith with proper authority. The centurion understood the authority of the chain of command in this world, and he understood that the entire divinely created universe worked just like that. And the centurion understood the close relationship between trusting Jesus and obeying Jesus, and we need to too. Because bold faith relies on Jesus' authority in every dimension of life. And those who embrace bold faith in Jesus recognize and rely on Jesus as the absolute authority over every dimension of their life. Every dimension. Isn't it true that it's perilously common isn't it, in most of our lives to sort of conveniently uncouple faith in Jesus from obedience to Jesus? Have you ever had that struggle? <laughs> One of my favorite lunch places, and uh, I do like to eat. One of my favorite lunch places is Panera. Now, I'm not getting any kickbacks for this. I want you to know this. But one thing I love about Panera is, maybe you do, is that you pick two menu. Because for lunch, I have the hardest time deciding what I'm going to eat. So I love the freedom to come and go, mm, I think I'm going to have salad and then, a, you know, maybe half a sandwich or soup. Are you like that? It's kind of a you pick two world. The problem is we apply that to our faith life. But that's a counterfeit faith. See, none of us can have a you pick two approach to Jesus if we understand who he is. We don't have that option to pick and choose what we like about Jesus. Yet we do it all the time, don't we? Isn't it fascinating that Luke chapter 6 ends with these words, this sermon, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? So as we wrap this up, let me ask you some questions. Will you think with me and pray with me? Here are the questions. Where in your life are you not relying on Jesus' authority? Where is there a lack of wholehearted obedience in your life? Perhaps it's a relationship you're unwilling to forgive. Think with me. Who comes to mind? Or how you're treating your roommate, your spouse, your parents. Or how you're stewarding your financial and wealth resources how you are running your business, the way you are treating your employees or fellow workers. Perhaps it's in the thoughts and expressions of your sexuality. Where is Jesus presently off limits in your life? Bold faith is available to everyone. To everyone, to you and me. Bold faith has confidence in Jesus. Bold faith relies on Jesus' authority. What do you think made Jesus stop in his tracks? What grabbed his heart and turned his head? Bold faith. Because even a little bold faith goes a long, long way. 
when it finds its way to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the beauty and wonder and authority and power of our Lord Jesus Christ will cause us to rejoice and cause us to reflect. May we embrace bold faith. Bold faith in the King and glorious Jesus who loves us, who died for us, who is constantly with us whom we find that we are his beloved. Amen.